0: Hey and welcome back to the history of China. Remember to check out the website dormroomhistory.com/the-history-of-China to see all the media about this episode. We got maps, pictures of all the characters, comment boxes, etc. It's all there. And oh, also be sure to subscribe and rate the show on whatever listening platform you're on. It goes a long, long way. But regardless last time, we reached a major milestone. There's no way around it. We did. Because after hundreds of tumultuous years and hours on hours on hours of content, the Qin state, under Qin Shi Huang Huangdi, finally brought the warring states period to a close. Now, in the place of the Zhou dynasty and the warring states period laid only one entity, the Qin state, and their aptly named dynasty, the Qin dynasty. Qin Shi Huangdi and the Qin state had used probably, I mean, the all-time most pragmatic state structure when they finally fully embraced legalism. But the wars are done. The world is now in the palm of Qin Shi Huangdi's hand. The Qing dynasty is here, but how are the Qin going to fully consolidate this new dynasty? Are they all going to be legalist? Who's going to collect the taxes? How will you keep the nomadic raiders out? How will you keep all the states in line under the dynasty? There's a lot of questions here, and there's a lot of work to be done. So without further ado, the history of China, episode 22. Welcome to Qin Dynasty. For the first couple episodes, we were plowing through dynasties like I do Red Bulls before my 8.30 stat lab. I should probably lay off, though. But that wasn't indicative of those dynasties not being interesting or that they weren't long, it's just that, well, not much really came down to us from them. And heck, the Xia Dynasty was a Chinese version of the Iliad in that maybe it was real? Probably not, but to some degree, maybe. Who knows? The reason we got sort of wrapped up in the Zhou Dynasty, though, is that, look, first off, it was actually straight up just the longest dynasty, not up to just this point, But ever. And on top of that, it was also recorded in extreme detail. And that detail also came from some of the most important people and works in all human history Art of War, Confucius, and later Confucianism, etc., etc. The Warring States defined the Zhou, because we saw that the Eastern Zhou Dynasty was sort of like the, well, present royal family of England. It kind of just existed because it did. And the warring states, look, were incredible. It was a time of groundbreaking thought, groundbreaking technological developments, unbelievable history, people, battles, everything. But now, here we are. A new age for China. Where do we even begin? Qin Shi Huangdi finished what his predecessors had started hundreds of years before, and now he was the first emperor of China. Though, yeah, one of his recent predecessors, as we know, eh, well, dabbled with the emperor title there for a hot sec, though the first undisputed emperor of all of China is here, and it's Qin Shi Huangdi. The question on everyone's mind, at least my mind at least, is, well, now what? Things aren't just going to start working the Chins' way just because they crushed everyone else on the battlefield. I mean, I'm sure they hoped that. But the fact is, everyone uses different currency. Different states use different measurement systems. And to get into the weeds here, the wheel size on carts was different. And the axle lengths were different, which actually affects a lot more than I thought it did. Well, yeah, that was different too. Every state had also fully integrated their own spheres of influence with their own legal codes, processes, and you name it. It was completely different through every state. And to add to the complexity that the Qin Dynasty actually faced, you had to get tons of states to be, well, yeah, under legalism. Oh, and on top of that, many don't want to be under your rule at all. So there's a lot to do. Essentially, I've boiled down three things the Chin had on their plate at the get-go of their self-titled dynasty. First, they had to make a cohesive dynasty by doing everything I listed above and more. Second, and maybe something I should have kept us more in the loop about, but northern nomadic horse people were now the dynasty's problem as well. Any city that is raided is now a Qin dynasty city. It might have not bothered the Qin state if nomads raided the Wei state or the Han state or the Yue state. It wouldn't have mattered. But now it's all the Qin dynasty. But these nomads were not one people. But the largest sort of confederation of these tribes is the Xiongnu. And we will be dealing with them for a while. They are fast, deadly, and exceedingly hard to get onto a battlefield. To deal with them, the Qin dynasty were almost going to have to build a wall. I mean, they would have to build a great wall if they were going to realistically curb these raids. See what I did there? And third, though. Qin Shi Huangdi was going to try to fulfill his dream of immortality. He did not want to die, and he was going to find a way to live forever. So let's get into it. Now, I wanted to speak about what I'm about to first. Because look, it's just super cool. Though yeah, maybe not as important as some other stuff. So while Qin Shi Huangdi was a legalist, that was not exactly a spiritual understanding of the universe. Do your job and do it well or else does not really explain the deep questions about the human experience. Qin Shi Huangdi believed in the five elements. Earth, wood, metal, fire, and water. The Zhou dynasty had been of the fire element, and thus they would utilize the color red as their main color. But Qin Shi Huangdi was allegedly born with water as his birth element. And ironically, water came after fire. So it's working on two fronts here. You know, water can deal with fire, but also the Qin are coming after the Zhou. But this is what's really cool, though. Because the water element's color isn't what you think. It's not blue. It's black the most intense and brutal and powerful ruling authority was flying black flags, wearing black garments with black pennants. Now, that is just so cool for me as a fan of Chinese history. And you can see why. It's just perfect for them. Okay, I know, a bit of a digression, but back to the main story. We know already that China had been quote-unquote unified, But there was a lot of work to do if they were going to actually make it unified. You know, in a holistic sense. Obviously, the warring states had just been ended. So Qin Shi Huangdi was going to make sure he could do everything he could to stop such a period from ever happening again. I mean, you saw it. States could be beaten, but they could raise an army pretty quickly. Think back to the episode, I Believe Rise of Qin. But in that previous episode, the Qin made administrative reforms to prevent powerful noble families from competing for power within the state, and stop them from monopolizing administrative positions. And probably because they saw the Jin state fail to pass such reforms and broke into three smaller states all along family lines. But now the Qin were THE imperial dynasty. And Qin Shi Huangdi and his prime minister, Li Si set out to reform the administrative systems of all of China. They realized that the feudal systems other states, which, yes, were now under their dynasty, well, they weren't going to fly. The feudal systems might have been the way of the land for hundreds of years for these states, but that's not going to happen anymore. It's the Qin show now. And the Qin needed to break states down. They were not states under the wing of the dynasty. They were literally part of the Qin. So Li Si and Qin Shi Huang Di broke the entire Chinese realm down into 36 commanderies. Then it was subdivided below that. So you had your commanderies, and then below that you had counties, then below that you had your towns, Then below that we had Li, or a hundred family units. And you can just think of that as a community. So you are not a member of your old state anymore. No. You would not identify yourself or somebody else as a Han person or a Wei person. No, no. This was new. And hence why the Qin Dynasty is referred to as the first imperial dynasty. You were part of the Qin system through and through. And obviously, in classic Qin administration tactics, hereditary rights were ripped away from all regions and replaced with, you guessed it, meritocracy. But the Qin weren't done yet. And they were about to probably do more to unify China now than they did when they conquered the last state to end the warring states. Qin Shi Huangdi and Li Se. and I really want us to remember that it really was a two-man team, not just a solo operation by Qin Shi Huangdi. Li Su, the prime minister, played a huge role in all of this. Nevertheless, Li Su and Qin Shi Huangdi first off, standardized all of China's money onto the Bangliang coin. That's huge. Everyone in the whole realm is now finally on the same monetary system. Look, imagine if the United States had different currencies for each state. How unified would this country really feel? And yeah, it'd be really hard to do business. The Chin Court then standardized all measurements. You know, your weights, your distance. And yeah your axle length and wheel diameter, etc., all of that is standardized. But then the Qin standardized probably the most important thing to ever be standardized in China to this point. Because the language was standardized. I didn't really ever mention this. But each state seemingly had their own local dialects and used different scripts. And the Qin's own seal script was refined and then standardized itself. And then that final product was made the script for the entirety of the dynasty. Everyone is now using the same money. Everyone is now using the same weights and measurements and axle length and wheel diameters. Trade and commerce is now streamlined amongst everyone. So it's unified in that sense, but now they all speak the same language. China is now, finally, unified to a point where you can almost call it one entity. Obviously it wasn't that easy, but when you standardize all of this and you were under one system allegedly, what can the Qin now do to a higher degree than they could ever before? Well, you can raise one heck of an army. Yeah, you might have crushed the other states and their respective militaries, but you can still draw from the male population of all of these states now, not just the Chins. What a big difference that makes. I mean, the Qin were fielding ginormous armies, and yeah, they crushed their enemies, but now they could draw from all of them? It's insane. But where would you take such a large army? And who would you even use it against? Well, the Qin looked to the north and saw the Xiongnu as nothing but a threat. Real quickly, to reiterate, the Xiongnu were steppe nomads as in they were nomadic horse people from the great and vast steppe, as west as Russia, as east as China. But they were, of course, not the only steppe people, not even close. But the Xiongnu were the confederation or group of tribes of these nomadic horsemen that happened to be right up against the Qin Dynasty's border. Though at this exact moment, the Xiongnu, well they were not really doing much aggressing. Northern nomadic horse people had terrorized the northern borders of several states for a long time, but right now, in 215 BC, the Xiongnu were not causing many problems, if any. But Qin Shi Huangdi realized they were still a threat as long as they, well, existed along their border. So in 215 BC, Qin Shi Huang ordered an invasion force, reported as low as 100,000 troops and as high as 300,000 troops, to invade the Ordos Loop. This force, led by a general named Meng Tian, launched what we would call today as a preemptive strike against the Xiongnu they were to drive these nomads out of their land in the Ordus Loop. And the strike was meant to work twofold. On one hand, it expands the Qin Dynasty. I mean, if you claim the land, it's now added to your realm. And on the other, it pushes the nomads farther away. It seems like a win-win strategy. And now, the Ordus Loop, O-R-D-O-S Loop, is a region surrounding the Yellow River in north-central China, where the river makes a huge bend up to the north, then goes across to the west, and then drops back down south again. The top of the loop, by the way, pushes into Inner Mongolia. And now, obviously, a map of this is available online for this episode's post. And we know how formidable these nomadic horsemen are. You've heard of the Mongols. You know that they're dangerous. You've heard of the Huns. You know that they're dangerous. But the Qin took the Xiongnu by an upwards of 300,000-man surprise. And in a rare instance in history, the settled society caught the nomadic group flat-footed. And the Qin drove the Xiongnu tribes out of the Ordis loop quickly. And the leader of the Xiongnu tribes, a character named Tolman, well, he fled far north into Mongolia. You don't get that a lot. You don't get a settled society coming in and pushing out the lightning-fast nomadic horse archers that much. But it's a 300,000-man surprise. They caught him flat-footed. The Xiongnu weren't doing anything. They weren't expecting this. So with victory secured and the region now under Qin control, Meng Tian, the Qin general, was ordered to secure this new land with immense fortifications. Because look, they didn't eliminate the threat of the Xiongnu as much as they really just pushed it farther away. And the Xiongnu were not going to be gone forever. Everybody knew that. But this is where I will bring up Rome again. Western historians spend so much time lauding over the Roman legions and how they were fantastic soldiers, but equally as fantastic engineers. But here, in 215 BC, well before the age of Julius Caesar and whatnot, Meng Tian, the Qin General, embarked on one of the most ambitious engineering projects yet. And look, to preface, the Chinese were already quite savvy at building walls and fortifications. If you saw the images of the Hangu Pass on the website, you know the Chinese were fantastic defensive builders. I mean, even as early as the spring and autumn period, massive walls were built by several states to protect either against northern horse people, but in many cases, they were built to protect themselves against other states. And again, online, on many of these maps, you can see these massive walls built. I mean, they extend along so many borders. And Qin Shi Huangdi ordered that these domestic walls, the ones dividing states, well, that they were destroyed because they divided the empire. Because yeah, you don't need or want those walls in the middle of your empire because currently you're trying to impose the will of a unified dynasty. You don't need any state getting a little rebellious and hiding behind their big walls. Knock them down. Because the states, they're no more. But here in the north is where the walls would be kept and built upon. I mean, several states had sort of built their own wall networks to protect themselves against different nomadic groups. And Meng Tian and the Qin embarked on a plan to build a wall system that ran from Liaodong to Lin Tao which in essence fully enclosed the Ordus region that they just seized. I mean, it's a massive structure. The walls would connect to older wall systems already built along the frontier. And this would be the first building on the long-running Great Wall of China. Now, this isn't really the Great Wall you can see today as the wall is rebuilt, expanded upon, etc., for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. But some of the Qin Wall still exists. And it's set about beginning the project of the never-ending Great Wall. Borders change, new materials are found. But the Qin Dynasty just started the Great Wall of China. And it's massive. Even what the Qin built is massive. And such a project, though... It's going to be hard. Local resources were needed. So when they were in mountains, they used stones from the mountain ranges. And then when they were building in flat plains, they just used rammed earth. And now there were no surviving records indicating, you know, exactly how long this was going to be. A lot of it's gone to history. And most of the ancient walls have eroded away over the centuries. And very few sections are still around. And the human cost of the construction is unknown. But it has been estimated by some historians that hundreds of thousands, if not up to a million, people died building the Qin Dynasty wall. The Qin were brutal, but this system appeared to be generating extraordinary results. De Xiong knew, though, We're less than happy with everything that just happened. And Qin Shi Huangdi might have overplayed his hand this time. Because the Xiongnu were just minding their business there. And they got invaded by the Qin. So the Xiongnu sat back and realized that the Qin dynasty, well, they're a serious threat to their existence. And so the Xiongnu decided to reorganize and unify themselves To create a massive Xiongnu Confederation to meet this new threatening foe. The Xiongnu are going to be very important for a very long time here. So don't forget their name. And this invasion into the Ordis Loop starts a chain reaction. And you can see now the first is the Great Wall, and then the Xiongnu were mad they got kicked out of their land, so they're gonna make themselves even bigger. But this chain reaction will eventually If you believe many historians, may indeed help lead to the fall of the Western Roman Empire. So you're going to have to stick around to see how that chain reaction happens. And it is really interesting. But next week, Qin Shi Huangdi may believe in the five elements. But that's about all that's going to fly under the new dynasty. It's still legalism. The 100 schools period is over and it's going to be cracked down upon. But what's seemingly more important to Qin Shi Huangdi than cracking down on other codes or philosophies? Well, it's living forever. And he will use every ounce of power he has to see to it that he lives forever as the immortal ruler of China. Remember to follow and rate the show and check out the website dormroomhistory.com to see information about this week's episode, past episodes, and to connect to our social media accounts and to the donate page. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you guys next week on The History of China.